0: Welcome to Russian History Retold Episode 236 Anna Akhmatova, Russia's Poet Last time, we covered the nobles who stayed in Russia after the revolution. Today, we cover the life of the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova, who also remained in her birth country. Before we get into her life, I'd like to read a description of her from the book Anna of All the Russians, A Life of Anna Akhmatova by Elaine Feinstein, a book I highly recommend. Anna Akhmatova is one of the greatest poets of Russian literature. Her work has a classical elegance drawn from Pushkin and a passionate voice rising directly out of her own life. Many men fell in love with her beauty. Yet all three of her marriages were miserably unhappy. She began writing at a time when to think a woman as a post was absurd, as she remarked ironically. Her genius soared above any such category, yet she paid for that triumph as a wife and mother. All of the momentous events of the 20th century touched Akhmatova's life directly, and she became the voice of a whole people's suffering under Stalin. She needed exceptional courage in the quarter century when she was not allowed to publish, especially in the years when her son and her third husband were held in the Gulag. An iconic figure for all those whom the regime repressed, she sustained that heroic role through illness, poverty, and a lifelong conflict between womanly affections and the demands of her art. Akmatova endured all her unhappiness with a dignity and composure which led Marina Tsevatsheva, the only woman of comparable genius, to call her Anna of all the Russias, as if she were a Tsarina. Born on June 23rd, 1889, as Anna Andreevna Gorenko in Bolshoi Fontan, Odessa, close to the Black Sea, which is now in part of Ukraine. Her father, Andrei Antonovich Gorenko, was descended of a minor Ukrainian nobility. Her mother, Aina Erasmovna Stogova, was descended of minor Russian nobility. Andre was a naval engineer until he was forced to resign because of an acquaintance, Lieutenant Nikitenko. The officer had created a bomb that had made its way to some revolutionaries who killed a minor member of the imperial family. Nikitenko was executed, but Gorenko was allowed to move on. Since Andrei was not involved in the assassination, he was offered a position in the Russian Civil Service eventually moving himself and his family to the Tsar's summer retreat in the town of Tsarskoye-Selo. There were six children in the Gorenko family, two from a previous marriage of Andres. Still, this was not a healthy family. Irina, born in 1892, died at the age of four. Akhmatova confessed that this death would haunt her throughout her childhood. In 1900, Anna herself would come down with what we believe was smallpox. It was right after she recovered that Anna would write her first poem. The Gorenko family was also an unhappy one, as Andre was a philanderer. As his son would say of him, he was, quote, a great chaser after good-looking ladies and an even greater squanderer of money. Anna's mother, Ina, had a tragic first marriage. Shortly after the wedding, one in which she married a much older man, Zumchilla, he committed suicide. Ina was very kind towards Anna throughout her childhood, and here is a poem she wrote about her mother, whose clear eyes were so deep a blue that looking into them was to think of the sea. She had an uncommon name, white hands, and a kindness that has come down to me, though it has been a useless inheritance and this harsh life of mine. In her early teen years, Anna would become a striking figure. Here is how Elaine Feinstein describes her in her book. Quote, By 14, the pudginess of her childhood face had altogether disappeared, and Anna had become a beauty with chiseled features huge gray eyes, and long, black, straight hair. She had a dancer's body. As an adolescent, she was 5 foot 11 inches tall, and so lithe and supple that she could touch the nape of her neck with her heels when she lay prone. It is now 1905, a year that Anna would claim to be a watershed year, in part due to the events that occurred on January ninth, a day that is now known to history as Bloody Sunday. It would continue with the tsarist back pogroms against Jews and dissidents. It was also a bad year for Garenko. Andrei had a dispute with Grand Duke Alexander Mihailovich, causing him to resign from his civil post. Anna's sister, Ina, entered a sanatorium after contracting tuberculosis. She, unfortunately, would die the following year in July. Anna supposedly attempted suicide by hanging. But luckily, the nail in the wall popped out. To top things off, her parents decided to separate. Andre would move in with his mistress while sending the rest of his family to the south, to Crimea. This abandonment has been suggested as the reason why Anna would accept the problems and unhappiness of her many marriages. She would also burn with a deep-seated dislike for her father. She would write, quote, I cannot respect my father. I never loved him. And why should I obey him? A young man, Nikolai Gumilov, a poet, would fall in love with young Anna. This love was rejected by her, who became appalled when he threatened suicide if she didn't reciprocate. Anna shut him off for a year. By 1906, she and her family were living in Kiev. In 1907, the two... Nikolai and Anna would meet again, and they found more common ground with which to further their relationship. Gumilov would propose to her shortly after the meeting, but Anna rejected him. She would go back and forth over the coming years, finally agreeing to marry him in 1910. Love in this marriage, though, was a one-way street. Nikolai adored Anna. The feeling was not mutual. This begs the question: why did Anna agree to marry him? The possible answer is that she was living with an abusive uncle in the provinces, something that Gumilov could rectify. Anna would go with him to St. Petersburg, where she could begin to stretch her literary wings. Within days of their wedding, Gumilov seemed to have lost his passion for Anna, though. Here he was, having been after his now wife for seven years. And when he finally has her, He's no longer interested. They spent their honeymoon in Paris, returning a month later to take a room on Rue Bonaparte in uh, St. Petersburg. Anna realized that her marriage to Nikolai was financially beneficial, as her mother was struggling and Gumilov was pretty well off. Nikolai went off to Africa in September 1910. Anna went back to Sarskoi-Selo to her family home. There she wrote one of her most famous and celebrated poems, The Grey-Eyed King. Welcome to you, everlasting pain. The Grey-Eyed King died yesterday. The autumn evening was scarlet and humid when my husband returned. He told me calmly. They brought him back from the hunt, you know. They found his body lying by an oak. You must feel sorry for the young queen, they say. In a single night, her hair's gone gray. Then my husband find his pipe near the fire and went out promptly for his night's work. Now I shall wake up my little daughter and look deeply into her gray eyes. Outside poplars are sighing in the wind. He is no longer alive. your king. Anna had her first major work evening published, come out in 1912 and it was a smashing hit. It contained 46 poems and almost universally praised among her literary circles. Akhmatova was actually terribly embarrassed by her sudden fame. She said, quote, I considered it indecent, as if I had left a stocking or a brazier on the table. Many of her poems were about relationships between a man and a woman, which caused many to speculate that it was a reflection of Anna's marriage to Nikolai. This, and the fact that her star was rising above his, would cause a great deal of stress in their marriage. Around this time, Anna began to become aware of her father's philandering through the gossip mill. And Gumilov himself would basically bed any woman who would have him, and he allowed her to do the same thing. But this type of open marriage was not terribly uncommon among Russia's elite in the day. Akmatova would give birth to her only child, Lev Nikolaevich Gumilov, on October 1st, 1912. He would go on to become quite famous himself as a Soviet historian, ethnologist, anthropologist, and translator from Persian. Now this is despite a really tough early life. He would spend many years in Soviet labor camps due to who his parents were. After the birth of their child, the Gumilovs gave up any idea of being monogamous. Nikolai would have many mistresses, with one giving birth to a son. But Anna showed no jealousy in her writings as she was off having her own affairs. Over the coming years, she would publish another book of poems. Anna would also have a premonition of the tumultuous events on the horizon, as evidenced by her poem, July 1914. There's a charred smell. They have been burning, dry peat in the marshlands for weeks. Now even the birds have stopped singing, and the aspen no longer trembles. The sunshine shows God's displeasure. There's been no rain since Easter. Into my yard came a stranger with only one leg, and he said to me, Frightening times are approaching. Soon, fresh graves will cover the land. There'll be earthquakes, plague and famine, eclipses and signs in the heavens. And yet our enemies will not rip up their own lands at their pleasure, for the mother of God herself will spread a white cloth over our sorrows. The coming storm was not the revolution, but the beginning of World War I on August 1, 1914. Nikolai would be posted to a cavalry unit. Anna would be stricken with tuberculosis, which she recovered from after a few months. Her response to the war would be a poem entitled Consolation. You will have no more news of him, nor hear about him again, and you will not find his grave in the fires of wretched Poland. Your soul must be quiet and tranquil. He is no more a lost soul, but a new soldier in God's army. So do not mourn any longer. Your grief and tears are a sin. Don't weep when you were home. Think rather that now you can pray to an intercessor of your own. The years between 1912 and 1914 were known as the Silver Age of Russian literature. During this time, it's been rumored that Anna had affairs with Ossip Mandelstam, Boris Pasternak, Alexander Bloch, and mosaic artist and poet, Boris Anrep. With the 1917 revolution, many of Anna's friends, lovers, and fellow writers decided it was time to leave Russia. But Anna and a few of her compatriots, along with her husband Nikolai, decided to stay. It would have grave consequences for many of them. A dark cloud would hover over the Russian and new Soviet field of literature. It is the year 1918 and the Bolsheviks are in a battle with forces opposed to their control. It is also the year that Anna Akhmatova decided to divorce her husband, Nikolai Gumilov. The news of the request devastated Gumilov, who wondered if she was in love with someone else. Anna told him that she intended to marry Vladimir Shaliko, a Babylonian scholar. To all her friends, though, Shaliko seemed like an odd choice for a husband. As Elaine Feinstein puts it in her biography of Anna, quote, He had a thin face, a wry grin, and a caustic tongue. Akmatova had this to say about her selection of her second husband, quote, I felt so filthy. I thought it would be like a cleansing, like going to a convent, knowing you are going to lose your freedom. The marriage was not a happy one, especially given the terrible conditions of Petrograd following the revolution. Lenin had decided to move his capital back to Moscow, mainly in fear of a possible attack on the city by the Germans. The infrastructure of the city was decaying rapidly. Water wasn't flowing through the pipes, electricity was unavailable, and the sewage system failed. Adding to the misery, food was becoming scarcer and scarcer as the Russian Civil War was wreaking havoc with the agricultural harvests from 1918 through 1922. Akhmatova wrote the following about the state of the former capital in 1920. Quote, The old Petersburg signboards were still all in place, but dusk, darkness, and yawning emptiness lay behind them. You could pick a large bouquet of wildflowers and the Gostny Dvor. The famous Petersburg wood pavement was rotting. There was the smell of chocolate wafting from the basement windows of Kraft. All the fences, though, of Sarskoye-Selo had been burned. Anna left her marriage with Gumilov without as much as a fork or pot to cook with. Her poetry almost completely stopped during the Civil War years, with only two being published in 1919 and none in 1920. Also, Shaliko convinced Anna to have no more children, something she would come to regret. In 1918, she wrote the following poem about the situation. Ice floats by in chunks. The skies are hopelessly pale. Why are you punishing me? I don't know what I've done wrong. If you need to, then kill me. But don't be so harsh and stern. You don't want children from me, and you don't like my poetry. Let everything be as you wish. I've been faithful to my promise. I gave my whole life to you. My sadness, I'll take to my grave. As you can tell, Anna seemed quite morose during this time, but things would get even worse. On August 3rd, 1921, Nikolai Gumilov was arrested by the Cheka on charges of participating in a monarchist conspiracy known as the Petrograd Military Organization. Of course, the charges were trumped up as no such organization existed. On August 24th, Gumilov, along with 60 others, were sentenced to death, with their execution by firing squad carried out on the 26th. Akmatova would write the following after learning of Gumilov's arrest and death. Terror lingers, fingers, all things in the dark, leads moonlight to the axe. There's an ominous knock behind the wall, a ghost, a thief, or a rat. The conviction of Nikolai would have grave consequences for Anna, and especially their son Lev. He would spend almost 20 years in the gulags from 1938 until 1956. For Anna, her poetry was banned from being published beginning in 1925, as it was considered too bourgeoisie. Many of her friends from her days in Petrograd before the Revolution would condemn her and abandon their relationships with her because of the fear of being associated with a woman whose ex-husband had been executed and her son being considered a counter-revolutionary. By 1926, Anna had enough of her marriage with Shaliko. She asked for a divorce, which was granted that same year. The two of them had a developed tuberculosis, would eventually lead to his death in 1913. In 1930, excuse me. Akhmatova would rekindle a relationship with an old friend from her days at Sarskoy Selo in 1913, Nikolai Punin. They would stay together from 1926 until the early 1940s, despite his being arrested twice and sent into exile in Samarkand. Anna would write letters to Stalin imploring him to keep her now common law husband alive. This would keep him from some of the harsh punishments dealt to others in the same situation until his last arrest in 1949. Putin would be caught up in the so-called Leningrad Affair. It was a series of trumped-up and false accusations against Communist Party leaders and intellectuals who would survive the Siege of Leningrad, which we will return to later. Over 2,000 citizens were arrested, with many being sent to the gulag system and many— including Nikolai Punin dying in prison in 1953. The numerous purges that Stalin had ordered over the years would inspire Akhmatova to begin work on what would become her magnus opus in 1935, known as Requiem. It was a collection of the poems that described the Soviet great terror of 1936 to 1938. The opening paragraph laid out the reasoning behind her poems, which would not see the light of day, until its publication in Munich in 1963. Her work would not be published in the Soviet Union until 1987. Quote, During the frightening period of the Yezhov Terror, I spent 17 months waiting in prison queues in Leningrad. One day, somehow, someone picked me out. On that occasion, there was a woman standing behind me. Her lips blue with cold, who, of course, had never in her life heard my name. Jolted out of the torpor characteristic of all of us, she said into my ear, everyone whispered there. Could one even describe this? And I answered, I can. It was then that something like a smile slid across, what had previously been just a face. The poems would describe her feelings during the arrest and imprisonment of her son Lev and her husband Nikolai Poonin was considered one of the most important works related to the period of the Great Terror and how it felt to live in the Soviet Union until the, under the constant watch of the NKVD and Joseph Stalin. The 1940s and 50s were difficult years for Akhmatova, to say the least. Andrei Zhidanov publicly called her, quote, half harlot, half nun. He characterized her work as the poetry of an overwrought, upper-class lady, and her work the product of eroticism, mysticism, and political indifference. Her poems were banned from publications in the journal Zvezda and Leningrad because of the accusations that she was poisoning the minds of Soviet youth. Her surveillance was increased, and she was expelled from the Union of Soviet Writers. The threat of arrest was always hanging over the head of Anna during Stalin's reign, something that would wear her down physically as well as mentally. After Stalin's death in 1953, things slowly, and I mean slowly, began to improve. By the 1960s, under Khrushchev, her international reputation soared. Then, in 1963, she was finally claimed by the Soviet authorities as a fine and loyal representative of their country and permitted to travel. In 1965, when she was allowed to travel to Sicily and England in order to receive the Taormina Prize and an honorary doctoral degree from Oxford University, the stress of her years of isolation, ravages from fighting, tuberculosis, and typhus caused her heart to give out on March 6th, 1966 as her friend and historian Isaiah Berlin said of her importance quote the widespread worship of her memory in the Soviet Union today both as an artist and as an unsurrendering human being has so far as i know no parallel the legend of her life and unyielding passive resistance to what she regarded as unworthy of her country and herself transformed her into a figure not merely in russian literature but in Russian history in the 20th century. There can be no end to the story of Anna Akhmatova without reading of her greatest work, Requiem. And I will start with her first lines. They led you away before sunrise. After you, as at a bearing out, I trudged. And the dim-chambered children whimpered, and Mary's candle was snuffed out. Upon your lips was an icon's iciness, And death's sweat on your brow. Don't forget, I will, like the mutineers, Wives under Kremlin's Krenels, weep. November 1935, Moscow. Number two. The quiet dawn is flowing quietly, And the yellow moon enters my house. He enters wearing his hat askew, And meets a shadow yellow moon. The woman is not well. The woman is all alone. Husband in the grave. Son jailed. Please offer a prayer for me. It's from 1938. Number three. This isn't me. Someone else suffers. And I couldn't survive that. And what happened? May it be covered in coarse black cloth. Let them carry away the streetlights. Night. 1939. Number four, shall I show you then, my dearest mocker, and the dear beloved of all your friends, you, Sarskoi Salo's carefree sinner, what will soon become of your life, 300th in line, care package in hand, under the cross's prison wall you'll stand, and with the heated waters of your tears, dissolve the surface of Christmas time ice, How the prison poplar sways side to side. Without a sound, how many innocent lives this very moment come there to an end. 1938. Number five. For 17 months straight I scream, calling for you to come home, please, throwing myself at the executioner's feet. You were my son and also my nightmare. Now everything is confused for the ages. Now I will never manage to untangle who is an animal and who a human being, nor how long I'll wait till the death sentence is carried out, only the dust-covered flowers and the ringing of the censer and the tracks into some unknown realm of uncertainty, staring in my face directly into my eyes. It threatens me with an impending death, that all-engulfing and engorged star." Nineteen thirty-nine. Number six, the light-hearted weeks are flying by. What's happened? I'll never understand. How did the white knights, my dear son, peek through the window of your cell, and now how again they glance, with their inflamed predator eyes, at your cross set there on the high place, and mutter about the end of your days. Spring, nineteen thirty-nine. Number seven. Sentence, and the stony logos lapsed upon my still living breast. No matter what, I was prepared. I would survive with this some way. I have so many things to do today. I must slaughter memory to the end. I need for my soul to turn to stone. I must once again relearn to live. But not that, summer's fevered rustle, as though a holiday beyond my window. So long ago I had a premonition of this. A bright day and a house grown empty. June 22nd, 1939, Fontanka House. Number eight, to death. You will come anyway. Why not today? I wait for you with great difficulty. I turned out the light and opened the door. For you, so simple and yet so mysterious. You may take any disguise you like. Barge in as a poison gas bombshell, or like a criminal creep with a dumbbell, or infect me with a dose of typhus, or come a fairy tale, invented by you, and so familiar it brings on nausea, that I may see the top of a blue cap and the pale from Fright apartment super. All's the same to me now. The NSA, Eddies, and the North Star shine brightly, like a blue spark in beloved eyes. The final horror takes me under its cover. August 19th, 1939. The Fontanka House. And understand this is during the time of the siege of Leningrad. Number nine. Already madness with its wing has blanketed half my soul and feeds me in its fiery wine and tempts into this black valley. I understood that I must yield to him, must admit his victory, attending more carefully to my own "'as though to someone else's delirium. "'I will not permit me either to carry away with me nor to retain anything, no matter how I try to persuade him, "'no matter I pester with supplications. "'No, not my son's terrifying eyes, "'suffering that has become stone, "'not the day the thunder arrived, "'not the hour of the prison visit, "'not the dear to me coolness of hands, "'not the linden tree's shadows trembling,' Not the remote and liberating sound. The final words of his final constellations. May 4th, 1940, Fontanka House. And by the way, I was mistaken. It wasn't during the uh, siege of Leningrad. It was during kind of the, uh, when she was put under basic house arrest and siege in her own uh, home. Number 10, crucifixion. Do not weep for me, mother, seeing as I'm in the grave. An angel's choir glorified the blessed hour. And the skies dissolved in the living flame. He to his father, why hast thou forsaken me? And to his mother, do not weep for me. 1938. And finally, Mary Magdalene beat her breast and wept. Her beloved disciple turned white as stone. And there, where his mother stood silent, not a soul dared to cast their glance. 1940, Fontanka House. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time as we discuss something that's pretty apropos for our times, and it's the plagues and epidemics that bedeviled Russia over the course of her history. So until next time, до свидания и спасибо